Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where we take a film out of the wonderful book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And I am Ian Woodington. And full disclosure, we haven't recorded an episode in quite some time, so there's a great chance that this might be all over the place. It probably will be. Fantastic. For, for you out there in podcast land, you'll have not have seen a hiatus at all because we've been pretty good about stacking our episodes and we making have, sure yes. we don't have any gaps in coverage but yeah we haven't recorded in about 5 weeks yes since before christmas so we're a little rusty so uh, but we'll, we'll we're going to we're going to shake off the cobwebs and uh, uh, we're going to give you some weekly recommendations i will go first today please and thank you so really quickly though um uh, i watched not just off of ian's recommendation but because it was on my radar uh, m- my wife and i watched you were never really here recently Yay. and it's good. It's good. It's a hard watch. Yeah. Um, it's not something you can just throw on. No, but it is absolutely worth your view. If you have Prime, it's free. Very much recommend watching it. If you are not just a film lover, but it's got great performances in it. Um, it tells a great story with very little background to it, which I think is really interesting. Now, did you see what I mean about the flashbacks? Yes. That's what impressed me is the flashbacks felt like how we remember things. Yeah. It's snippets of memory. Yeah. And, you know, not a lot of dialogue. And, and yeah, very, yeah, it's a very little backstory to it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But my, my recommendation this week, again, actually stems from Ian, who I know has seen this movie because I know that he has at the very least reviewed it. Ooh. And Melissa, and I don't know why it took us so long to watch this movie, but we finally watched Wind River. This movie is the best movie I've seen in a really long time. That's awesome. It is so... Good. It's the very, very uh, basic sort of story. Uh, Jeremy Renner plays this fish and wildlife guy in Wyoming, and he has kind of a tragic past. He's not married, and he has a son, but you find out kind of throughout the course of the movie that he had a daughter who was killed, and while out and about looking like he's going to go hunting or at least, you know, maybe... I don't know what he's if he's hunting or just kind of. Well, no, he's got... Uh, they've they've tasked him with getting rid of some mountain lions. That's what I meant. Yeah, thank you, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, trying to eradicate these mountain lions from the area, and he discovers this body, and 
he calls it in, and of course he knows it's a small town, so he absolutely knows who the woman is who was killed. And Elizabeth Olsen comes in as an FBI agent. Just very wet behind the ears. Yes, yeah. yeah. She's from she's from Florida, but coming via Vegas, so, so she's, she's way out of her element. And she's not dressed for you know midwinter Wyoming at all. Now, the actor that plays the the Native American, the father there. How blown away were you by him? Because he, for me, is like the unsung hero of that movie. I, I mean, I wish I could remember that actor's name because he's incredible. I only know it's Graham Greene who is the old he's the sheriff, sheriff. but yeah. the guy that plays the father of the girl that they find. Oh, you. Oh, yes. I thought you meant. I thought you were sorry. I thought you meant Jeremy Graham. Renner's father-in-law. Yes, the father of the girl who was killed. He is, he is fantastic. Stunning. Yeah, he is great in it. Yeah. And anyways, Elizabeth Olsen is kind of out of her depth, but. She knows after the autopsy, she kn- there's it's been it's very clear that she was raped. Yes. But the cause of death is basically that she she froze to death. She her lungs collapsed, and so Elizabeth Olsen can't get a team out here to really investigate it if it's not a murder. Which of course the autopsy is saying that it is not. So she sticks around and basically employs Jimmy Runner to help her track down who did this. And I'll leave it there because it really does turn into a sort of a, not a procedural, but but definitely trying to find the suspects behind who did it. And it's not doing this justice because this is Jeremy Renner giving, I would say, the best performance of his career just outside of the town. I think oh, hands down. he is fantastic in this. And I understand that this wasn't a big release. It wasn't, it didn't get a lot of play, but man, he is so good. Elizabeth Olsen's actually really good in it too. I think they are phenomenal together. Well, I've, I've been carefully watching or making sure that I try and watch most of what she does since the uh, Marcy Mary May Marley. Which I haven't seen, but I've heard it's it's good. St- stunningly good. And that turned me on to Jackson C. Frank, who is one of the greatest unknown folk artists of all time. Nice. Just to wrap Wind River up, if, if that doesn't convince you to watch it, it's written and directed by the guy who wrote Sicario. Yeah. Who is a, is a fantastic writer and a is great actor in his own. Taylor Sheridan? Taylor, yes. Okay. Yeah. And I know he wrote. I haven't, I haven't seen the new. Oh, yeah. Sicario. Yes, I yes. haven't seen the new Sicario, Sicario, but um, I mean, it looks solid. I mean, it got I mixed know, reviews. I know, yeah, I know yeah. he wrote it. Yeah. But I'm always, I'm for more Benicio and Josh Brolin sure. kicking ass and taking names. Sure. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm on that train. But anyway, um, again, in Wind River, at least as of this recording, it's on Netflix. Um, yep. It is, man, it's so good, and uh, it's got John Barenthal, who generally plays a villain in a non-villain role, and I won't say even who he is because he comes in very late in the movie. But I, I, sometimes when I, especially because this isn't the topic of the the podcast, I don't want to keep going, but this gets my highest recommendation. You have to go see this Well, and the way those sequences with him towards the end, the way that unfolds in your mind, like you know that the movie has to get to a certain point. Yes. But it's, you don't, as you're watching it, you're willing it not to happen, but too late. This is where we got to go with it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's uh, it's powerful stuff. It really is. It really is. It's it's a very yeah. good movie. Ian, what do you got this week? I'm so excited that you saw Wind River. Oh, it's great. I, I love that movie. Yeah, that was fantastic. one of the last reviews that I did for Skewed Review. And I remember you, you you saying that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we'll have, my, post, we'll have to post a link to that on the Facebook page. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a grammatical error in it, so maybe I'll I'll fix that and oh, I'll give geez. you the. <laughs> All right. Whatever. <laughs> um, a fear and desire is my recommendation of the week so we're uh hmm. Hmm, i wonder why <laughs> um so i i own everything that stanley kubrick has made 
uh, and I'd, I'd had a copy of Fear and Desire. I imported it from the UK because for some reason the, the version of it that they finally released uh, here in the States doesn't have his short films on it. Okay. So the, the UK release of it does have his three shorts. So you literally, if you have this and then you have everything else, you have everything that Kubrick shot. Yeah. So Fear and Desire is uh, his first film. It was made in 1953 for pretty much no money. Yeah. Uh, he hated this film. He actively went out of his way to try and destroy it and make sure it was never seen. And eventually, uh, somehow, some way, the Library of Congress got a hold of it. And uh, he he allowed it to be shown but only to film students right you have to like go through this whole you have to jump through a bunch of hoops to finally sure to get to see it so now after you know he's been he's been dead since well, he's been dead almost 20 years now mm-hmm. um so it has subsequently been released on on blu-ray and dvd and um I really don't understand why he hated it that much. I mean, it's very clearly a first film. Sure. So the basic premise is it's uh, it's four guys behind enemy lines. You have no idea. Good guys, bad guys, who they're fighting for. There are no countries are named. The uniforms are kind of nonspecific. The dialogue is very nonspecific. They're just, they've been shot down. They're trapped behind enemy lines, and they're just trying to get essentially back across the river to their base before they're found out. And along the way, they, they bump into this woman... And things get a little awkward, you know. They they kind of they don't want her to give them away, and the one guy kind of ties her to a tree, and the, while the other guys are off scouting, you know, things get awkward between them. And uh, it suffice to say, they end up making it back after you know having to murder a bunch of their or uh, you know there's a there's a cabin that they come across that's in their way getting back to where they need to be so they end up having to to go in there and and take out all these enemy soldiers and it's it's a it's kind of a rumination on war i mean kubrick never really repeated himself but he would revisit similar themes i mean war of course i mean he made this strange love which very loosely i guess you could call a war film well, yeah, in I the loosest say, sense of the, the word. Yeah. And then, of course, you have Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. Well, Passive Glory. And pa- obviously Passive Glory, yeah. which I think some people would very rightly say that Passive Glory is his first masterpiece. I'm not totally sold on that. For me, it's the movie that we're going to talk about here in a minute. But yeah, no, it was it was really uh, it was a really interesting experience finally getting to see his first film, and of course I watched the the three uh, short, short films. films. There's um, the last one with the Seafarers, and then the first two that he did. Day of the Fight and uh, the Flying Padre, and both of those are very basic sort of procedural, you know, B movie role, you know, stuff that you would see back in the day in the cinema before you would see your A feature. Got gotcha. Kind of stuff. Gotcha. Well, we're just we're just gonna stick with Kubrick, and um, again, you know, there are a lot of directors who are in the book multiple times, and Stanley Kubrick is in the book nine times, and Which essentially is the bulk of his filmography. That's what I was gonna say. Um, is that. The movie that we are talking about today is Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. This came out in 1964. But the other movies of Kubrick that are in the book, starting with Paths of Glory in 57, and then we go to Spartacus in 60, Lolita, 62, 2001 A Space Odyssey in 68, A Clockwork Orange, 71, Barry Lyndon in 75, The Shining, 1980, and Full Metal Jacket, 87. Those movies are all consecutive. So once you get the Paths of Glory ending with Full Metal Jacket, those all those are his films yeah. in that order. You're missing Eyes Wide Shut at the end in his first three features. Yes, and Eyes Wide Shut, I kind of go back and forth on whether or not I really, really like it or I'm only okay with it. But Well, his, his, while we're on that, Selfie just really 
brief little piece of trivia. I know his wife, Christiana, that he met on Pass of Glory, she really didn't want him to make that film. Yeah. She felt like it was really beneath him, sort of subject matter-wise. Which I, I just an interesting little tidbit. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But anyway, so we're talking about Doctor Strange Love, not just because it's a Kubrick film and because we wanted to do one of his movies. This is the 65th anniversary of Doctor Strange Love. In fact, technically, four days after this is released, it would be the exact 65th anniversary. It came out on January 29th, 1964. But it wasn't supposed to. No, it was not. We so, can get that out of the way right now yeah, if you'd like the, to. The original premiere date or the original preview date was November 22nd. 1963. Now, if there's any history buffs listening to this, you'll know what happened November 22nd, 1963. Of course, Kennedy was assassinated, and they felt that it was a, would be in poor taste to go ahead and, and continue. Yeah. In fact, there's, you know, to get another little piece of trivia out Talk there. about the that, original ending? Not the original ending, oh, okay. but the, uh, well, there I guess there is that, too. There was a line, he's been cut down in the prime the, of his Our life. president's been cut down in the prime of, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's also the line with Kong where he's going through the survival kit, and, you know, it, it ends with, oh, a guy could have a pretty good time in Dallas yeah, with all right. that. That's right. That's right. They dubbed they changed Vegas. It. You can still very clearly see him say Dallas. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty poor dubbing job, but. Well, probably happened. I mean, that that clearly happened in, in like, way, way late in post. Yeah. You know, it's one of those just unfortunate coincidences that... Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, I mean, I mean, our president was assassinated. I don't care which president it is. If that's the person who's in, who's in, in charge of your country, that's going to be... That's going to send shockwaves. And so to, you know, basically be filming this, and then as you're, as you're putting it together, this happens. And so there are things that you kind of say in your movie not only the city but our our young president has been cut down in the in his prime uh, yeah They're a little insensitive yeah. to, to carry on with although that. it did although from all all accounts Kubrick didn't like that ending anyway with the pie fight yeah. and all that so but we're jumping again like you said we're jumping way that's ahead. fine that's we haven't fine. even done we haven't even done the stats man uh, no, we have not done the stats so uh <laughs> this movie is is uh directed by Kubrick uh, written by him uh Terry Southern and Peter George and Peter George is the 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 guy who wrote the novel Red Alert of which the movie is loosely, loosely based on yeah I mean um, the, the novel is much more of a straightforward yeah thriller and no strange love yeah so i don't i mean I'm usually generally curious to read the books, especially of the movies that I really enjoy to see kind of where they go. And I don't know how interested I would be to read this. I mean, I, I would be, but yeah. Strange Love is such an iconic character. It'd be weird to read this this book without well, him and, in it. And Ripper, I mean, this this film is chock full of... That's true. Amazing care. I don't know if you want to go down the, the cast list while we're Oh, we're that's, that's where we're going. So um, I, I think... If you know this movie at all, you know that Peter Sellers is in it. He plays three roles. Of course, originally it was supposed to be four. Um, Which is another anecdote I absolutely love. Kubrick genuinely believed that he accidentally on purpose broke his ankle on the B-52 set so that he didn't have to play Kong as well. I mean, to be fair, Peter Sellers already thought he was being overworked. Right, and he couldn't get the accent right. Yeah, which I don't know how much I buy because he was... Really good with with mimicry and voices. And oh, I, absolutely! I, I don't. I tend to lean towards that. That yeah. maybe he acts he accidentally you know, on, on purpose. purpose. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, so Peter Sellers plays Captain Mandrake, who is the Royal Air Force pilot that is with uh, Sterling Hayden, uh, who plays General Jack Ripper. Jack, Jack D. Ripper. Jack D. Ripper. Yep. He also plays President Merkin, Merkin Muffley. And we'll get into all these sexual innuendos that happen in the movie as well. And he also plays the titular role of Doctor Strangelove. The only other two 
Do you know how hard it is for me to hear the name Doctor Strange Love and not just immediately shout Mind Fura, I can walk. I, I, that's got it. It's it's almost Pavlovic, I think. I think so. To just want to say it. Yeah. Um, the other two actors I wrote down were George C. Scott, who plays General Buck Turgidson, and uh, Slim Pickens, who plays Major Kong. I know. I realize that. James Earl Jones is in this movie. Yeah, but it's, it was his first theatrical yes, feature. But I don't... Yeah. He's in it, but that's whatever. Yeah. Well, um, the, the other the other person that I would call out would be uh, Keenan Wynn playing Colonel Bat Guano. At the uh, at the end there, he has the whole thing with the Coke machine. Yes, yes, yes okay, yeah. Which is just so good. In terms of, of stats, you know, it was recognized. Uh, it was definitely... It was nominated for a couple of Academy Awards, picture director, actor, and adapted screenplay. It didn't pick up any of them. No, it lost adapted screenplay to Beckett's uh, director. It lost to George Kukur for uh, My Fair Lady and also lost picture to My Fair Lady. Which I got to put out there, never seen it. No, neither have I. Which, you know, I'm sure people yeah. are clamoring, but... Oh, sure. It's as in the book, so yeah. I'm sure we'll get to it. Yeah. Although... Well, the, the, big, the big disappointment for me, even not having seen My Fair Lady, is losing... Peter Sellers losing to Rex Harrison... I mean, I'm sure Rex Harrison probably does a fine job in My Fair Lady, but does he do three fine jobs in one movie? Because these are arguably... Peter Sellers gave his three best performances all in the same film. Now, I haven't seen Being there. I haven't either, and I, I it's one of those ones that I keep wanting to watch. I know, and it's in the Criterion. Yeah. Right? As is this one. It is, it is. Although I don't have this one. I need to get it. I, I don't like owning more than one copy of the film yeah. because I have the Kubrick Blu-ray yeah. collection that I actually am just utterly in love with. That's not, and, and I, I already have broken that rule because I do have the criterion of Barry Lyndon, so I'm sure I will get Doctor Strange at some point. But you sure the packaging for it is fabulous. Oh, and, and by the way, Criterion, please sponsor us. It, it seemed to do pretty well at the BAFTAs, although here's something I want to bring up, and I don't, I, I defer to you not just because you're British, but because I, you might know more about this than I do. Kubrick was not a British man, he was, he no, was, he was born in York. Brooklyn. Yeah. So how was this up for Best British Film? It won, actually. It won Best British. Is it just because it was filmed in England? I think all, the, all the money. It depends. It's the production company. Okay. Like, it depends on where the money comes from. Sure. I was just... I'm, I'm just curious because... It, it's a complete British production. I mean, British right. crew. I mean, there's quite a handful just, of Brits in it. Yeah. No, yeah. I know that. I know that. But I was just, just checking because it was just... It was interesting to me that it was... Up for best British film. And at that, it's at that point that Kubrick kind of adopted England. I mean, he became an expat at that time yeah. and, and never left England Never left England again. I mean, those those beautiful sweeping shots in The Shining. I mean, he wasn't up in that helicopter. Yeah. You know, he's just that was he got severe agoraphobia. Well, and, I, and hated to travel. And you know, he lived. I he did travel to Ireland for Barry Lyndon, but other than that, never left the British Isles after this. I know we're we're kind of off topic here, but just while we're on Kubrick, I would I will say about Eyes Wide Shut, they did a really good job of making that feel like oh, absolutely Manhattan and everything. Because yeah. I I genuinely thought that that was shot in New York. Yeah, so that's a, that's all backlot. Yeah, so kudos to you, Kubrick, uh, up there in the sky. He got a DGA nomination, which yeah. is which is great. Uh, just quickly to go back to the Baftas, the one that I think is is the one that it deserves absolutely hands down Ken Adams production design yeah my god do you want now okay now not just because of it because because if you think of all the areas you know basically the, the main areas where this takes place the war room the B-52 and um, uh, Ripper's office thank you yeah essentially it, it's all really well done but when you when you hear the deep the way they had to do the plane mm. They, had, is, they couldn't get access to a B-52. Yeah, so they literally found an image of one 
and, and extrapolated. Yeah, exactly. So much so to so much detail that the FBI came and basically was like, "How did you? Yeah, how did you know what this looked like?" Well, no, Kubrick was convinced they they did their research illegally. Well, which, and there's at least which I don't think so. I don't but. either. But if if that's the case, then they really did a good job of hiding that because no nowhere that I looked did I hear anything about that. Mm. I just heard that you know the one story of taking the image and basically yeah. doing their best yeah. to, to guess through it. Now um, it's, it's the war room though. I mean that set is stunning. Those hard triangular angles. Yeah. Uh, which Kubrick decided he wanted the room kind of angular because he figured that. You know, an angled room would take the impact of a bomb better than, you know, just a, a box-shaped ah, whatever, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. kind of interesting. But that, the way that it's lit yeah, is just stunning. And the way they frame everything in there, they use every little bit of that, you know, set that they can. It looks stunning. Yeah. I mean, did you hear the Ronald Reagan anecdote? I, I think so, but... Where Reagan, when he became president, he's like, hey, I want to see that war room yes. from Dr. Strangelove. He's yes. like, uh, yeah, that's not a real thing, man. Yeah. Which shows you, you know. We can make it a real thing. Yeah. yeah. But I, I love that. It's, for me, uh, the, the one thing that I found I had never occurred to me before, I, Liz, so a couple of years ago, Liz bought me this beautiful gift, this uh, Stanley Kubrick archives published by Tashin, the guys that do those wonderful coffee table books. Like hugely very detailed sort of research orientated sort of book. I mean, it is like a, a just this huge compendium covering his entire life and his career. And of course, there's massive sections dedicated to each film. Sure. And they went out of their way to kind of light it like a poker room, like you would yes. see like a very like a cigar smoke filled kind of poker room. The way the lighting is from above. Well, and, and I so thought it feels like a game. I want to say that I, I even read that they actually put felt. Yes. On the table. Yeah, it's green to felt. Even, yeah, to even, can, like, to not just aesthetically give it that look, but for the actors to, to give yeah. them that thing as well, that, no, this is a card game. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a shame that, I mean, I, I can't imagine Strange Love in, in color, no, I, I and either. I wouldn't want to, Yeah, but it's interesting to kind of know that, to have that when you watch it subsequently and go, okay, yeah, no, this the green felt there, this is a poker game. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree. Hey, Ian, was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? I believe it was. Yeah. Uh, would that be in 1989? It, I believe it would as well. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's one my, of the original, my notes. One of the original 25? Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then the uh, the other thing, I, I mean, there's other, you know, smaller awards and stuff, but uh, it currently sits on uh, number 39 on the AFI Top 100. Used to be 26. I think somewhere in between those two is probably fair. where it should be. Yeah. Um, uh, 59 on the IMDb Top 250. Yep. And then... Uh, Kubrick's highest rated film on uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, ninety nine percent, which doesn't surprise me, mm. for two reasons. One, I think the satire plays well, no matter who the president is. Yeah, I think it's just like I watched it again a couple weeks ago, and I was like, well, yeah, yeah, there we are, there it is. And even when I watch, because I watched it when I was in grad school, and and Obama was president, but I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter who the president is because this happens and now you're just – you're in it. So yeah. now there you go. But I think the other thing too is that it's also maybe his shortest film or at least his shortest of his more well-known films because it's only 95 minutes. It is a quick watch because, I mean, to try to tell somebody, hey, well, all, all of go, watch, go watch Barry Lyndon. Yeah. Go watch this three-hour thing. Now, granted, you and I both know it's a great movie. Yeah. But to just get you know Joe Schmo off the street to go watch this three-hour historical drama – that's going to be tough, but to, hey, go watch this ninety-five minute black and white sat- black and white satire about nuclear war. 
I think that's, I think that'll yeah. get more people's attention. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, doesn't surprise me that the Rotten Tomato score is that high. And then, uh, as far as like, we usually do a quote, I don't know. Do you have a quote from a, from I a found, critic? I, yeah, I found the original Variety review. Oh, um, did you? Okay. And I'm not gonna, I, you know, it's it's it does a pretty good job. I just, I think it sums up the movie pretty well. Nothing would seem to be farther apart than nuclear war and comedy. Yet Kubrick's caper eloquently tackles a fail-safe subject with a light touch. While there are times when it hurts to laugh because somehow there is a feeling that the mad events in Strange Love could happen, it emerges as a most unusual combination of comedy and suspense. Which is pretty accurately yeah. put in there. I like the I like the little dig at failsafe. I don't know if that was deliberate or not. I hope it was. Yeah. Because if any if anybody doesn't know the backstory, was Sidney Lumet? Yes, it was, was Sidney Lumet. Was prepping uh, a film with him and Henry Fonda and Walter Matthau were yes. the two that I failsafe, saw that were in it. Which is which is essentially a very similar story about, you know, mutual assured destruction and things going wrong in a race against time to prevent our assured destruction. Yeah. And of course Kubrick brought a lawsuit against them and ended up I think Failsafe was released what, like eight months later. Eight months later, yeah. Yeah. So they, they he and this seems to be the thing that thwarted Kubrick the most in his career is feeling like somebody was trying to beat him to the punch. As far as so you have, say for instance, in the case of Full Metal Jacket, nobody had really done a big Vietnam movie. I mean, you could include, I guess, Deer Hunter, but Deer Hunter has Deer Hunter's about a lot more, I think, than Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Vietnam is just ha- happens to be where some of it is set, sure, and of course is a catalyst for things happening later in the yeah. film. But nobody had ever done something like what Kubrick wanted to do, and of course Oliver Stone beat him a year before with Platoon, yes. and of course he never made his Aryan Papers film. Uh, which was going to be his Holocaust film because Spielberg beat him to the punch with Schindler's List. Yeah, and of course his Napoleon movie, his his, you know, much talked about. I mean, I I think we are a a poorer society for not having his Napoleon film. I it probably would have been the greatest epic of all time based on everything that I've I've read. Well, and the thing about Kubrick that I I really have such appreciation for is his dedication to picking material that he really wanted to direct and not just taking everything that came his way. Yeah. And really and deciding early on that he he would only direct what he wanted to direct. I we won't go much into this cuz we're not we'll get to this movie eventually, but the whole thing with Spartacus. Right. And basically taking over a, a shoot that wasn't going very well and the clashing with Kirk Douglas and everything else. Well, and then there was a one-two punch kind of there, because not only did he have the issues on Spartacus, I mean, he after he was done with that, he started shooting Marlon Brando's One-Eyed Jacks, and Brando fired him two weeks in. And so One-Eyed Jacks ended up being the first thing that Brando, he just took over and directed yes. himself. So I'm sure yeah. between those two experiences, he's like, screw this, I'm just, I'm doing my thing. Yeah. I'm not a director for hire. I will, I will do my own projects, and I will, you know, from the ground up. So so if we if we skip... Let's you know we skip Spartacus. So if we go so between Lolita and Doctor Strangelove, it's two years that goes by. Between Strangelove and two thousand one, it's four years. Three years between that and A Clockwork Orange. Four years between that and Barry Lyndon. Five between Barry Lyndon and The Shining. Seven until we get Full Metal Jacket, and then it's twelve yeah. before we get to Eyes Wide Shut. And and maybe maybe you're right. Maybe the Aryan Papers movie. Would have come, it could have possibly been something that came out between Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut. Who knows? That well, he was. I think he was. He was planning for ninety three, sure ninety three or ninety four, and then of course Schindler's List came out. Yeah, and he's like, well, I can't. You have made the definitive. I mean, the Spielberg 
talks about this conversation that they had about it. Oh, yeah. He's a, you have made the definitive Holocaust movie. Like, I can't make mine now. Yeah. But it's just, I just, I appreciate that. I mm. And even though it's always cool to hear, and we'll just stick with Spielberg for a second, even though it's really cool to hear about a director doing two great movies in a year, or like like, like when we talked about Hitchcock doing uh, Vertigo, North by Northwest, uh, Psycho in consecutive years. Like, that's awesome to hear. Yeah. That's great. That's, that's, that's monumental. But I also think it's, it says something else about a director who really takes time like, you know, I'm not going to take everything that comes across my plate. I'm going to spend years developing this project that I truly am behind and want to put out there. Yeah. So. Well, it's a it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah. Because it guarantees you the highest quality possible, you should hope anyway, yeah. it's going to be the highest possible quality of filmmaking. But the other side of it is, well, now there's not enough Kubrick. Yeah. And, and there will never be I know. enough. Yeah. That this is all we've got, 13 films and a couple of shorts. This is all we've got. Yeah. And... It, it bums me out that Tarantino kind of has the same feeling because Tarantino has talked about this multiple times that he's done at 10. Yeah. You know, there's the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming up. That'll be number nine. And then whatever he does after that, that's it. And then there will be no more Tarantino. And he will just have this set of 10 films. Yeah. Which, I don't know. I don't... I, I'm not a world-renowned filmmaker like he is, so I don't know what the motivation is for that. Sure. You know what I mean? Besides like, just him being quoted as saying that 10 is a cool number to end on. Yeah. For what that's worth. Like, if you genuinely feel you have no more projects left in you. But I, I don't feel like that way. I mean, he's like he's like Paul McCartney, or he's like Bob Dylan. He's never going to stop well, you, yeah, having well, the desire, the drive to do his art. Yeah, you know, you how, many, how many albums does Paul McCartney and Bob Dylan have? These guys are just going to go until they drop. Yeah. And I feel like Tarantino, how, how are you going to switch that off? Yeah. How did yeah. Kubrick switch it off during those years when he was, you know, dormant? I, think probably, I mean, probably stayed active with at least the writing. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he was still developing stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, how much How much do you think that ate away at him at the end of his life? Like, this is it. This is all that I offered. Now, don't get me wrong. He still offered a hell of a lot more than people that make 20, 30, 50 films. Yeah. yeah. Right? But think about, think about how many movies Joel Schumacher has directed. Were we going to pick on Joel? No, no. Come on, But man. he's, okay, he's a mediocre director at best. Yeah. And I'm saying that he I'm, gets I'm opportunities. I'm saying he's an easy target, you fuck. <laughs> I don't think he's an easy target. <laughs> there are movies of his that I think are are fine. Yeah, yeah. You know, I would, I mean. Tigerland's incredible. I love Falling Down. Yeah. So I'm not saying he doesn't make good movies. I'm saying he also seems to be a director for hire. Sure. Yeah. It's more, more yeah, yeah. And, and, and when you look at a filmography of somebody who's made 20 I'm just trying to movies, spar with you, man. That's fine. <laughs> you did pick an easy target, though. Well, yeah, I did. Um, the only easier target you could have picked would have been Michael Bay. Whatever. So, um, I don't want to delve too much into the plot because I'm sure as we go through it'll come out. But essentially, essentially, what happens is uh, General Jack Ripper launch uh, sends out a what is it? Um, Plan R. Yes. To all of these planes that are constantly flying uh, near Russia to basically have them all deploy their nuclear weapons to specific targets in Russia. This happens, and then the war room and the president and all of his council get together to try to find a way to stop it. And we have we have Slim Pickens and uh, and James Earl Jones and the rest of the guys on the plane, unaware what's going on. And so that's sort of our three stations. We've got the plane, we've got pretty much Jack Ripper's office, and then we've got the war room. As things progress, all the planes get called back, except for the one that we've been following, because... 
of uh, uh, they were they were they were shot. They were shot at, and the radio yes. has been shot, and, and so they got an engine see. that's malfunctioning. So yeah. they're just trying to haul ass, and they're hit any time. And then they, they also can. get they drop so low beyond radar that they they haven't they they assumed that all the like the planes that were shot down and all the planes were recalled. I don't want to stick too much in the land of the plot because we're going to talk around it. And it's been around for so long that I'm not saying that you should just know what the movie's about. But as 50, we... 55 years. As we... 65. Sure about that? Nope. I said 65 at the beginning. So, whatever. You have to dub that in. It's 55. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'll probably just keep it in because it's funny. Yeah. Um, where do you want to... When you think of this movie, when you start telling people about this movie, or when you think about it, what is it that comes up first? It's just instantly quotable. Yes. There is not a single wasted syllable in this film. Yeah. Every line just smacks of brilliance. And they're all over the place, too. Yeah. I One of my favorites... Well, it, it goes from deadly serious. Like That's the thing that struck me about watching it this time, is the film is shot very much like every other Kubrick film. It's very... There's a, a lot of sterility to it. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of feeling or emotion. You're not getting very emotionally attached to these people. He shoots people from a certain distance. You know, so we're not... Obviously, there are close-ups in the film. Yeah. But for me, the, the films are not about his, his close-ups. It's about his sterility towards characters, really. That's the word that I keep coming back to, anyway. Uh, people... I know people don't... There are some people that don't enjoy Kubrick films because they find there's a lack of emotion in them. Sure. And that's that's the way this one is shot as well. It starts off very procedural. You know, there's just this, this crisis that's going to happen, and we've got to get around it. And then, as things ramp up, you start to see the comedy inherent in the situation well and that's what Kubrick said I mean when he tried to adapt it as a straight thriller yes he was trying to pull those ludicrous elements out and just like well that takes away from it that's, then it's unrealistic you have to have these ludicrous elements in there because that's what mutual assured destruction is it's 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 insanity yeah you talked about the the lack of emotion um it just makes me think of this what I read about how he got George C. Scott to amp up the antics and the zaniness of it. Oh yeah, well, apparently George, he told George C. Scott that uh, they weren't rolling a lot of the time, and that this was just rehearsal and to kind of get him to build up. And George C. Scott kept doing it, but he didn't feel very he, as an actor, didn't feel very good about it. Yeah. Ultimately, what we get, what we see on screen, is is hysterical. And I love the backwards roll, which of course was not planned. Oh yeah, that that pratfall is <laughs> yeah, fantastic. It's so great. Uh, just well, realizing well, that you're going to fall and you just have to, you just have to just keep rolling. You just yeah. have to roll through it. Yeah. He does. It's seamless. Yeah. It's, oh, it's fantastic. Well, and the other way that he bribed him to go bigger and bigger was he kept beating him at chess. Chess. Yes, that's right. And anybody that knows anything about Kubrick will know that he was a, a genius. I mean, there are parts of, there are parts now having seen uh, the S's for Stanley documentary, which I don't know if you're familiar with. That I haven't one. Seen it's it's it, on no. Netflix. Uh, it's about his personal driver. One of his, the people that was actually very close to him. Okay. And when you start to hear these stories about Stanley and especially see the correspondence and see his handwriting, mm-hmm. like he was Asperger's. He had to have been. Yeah. A bit of a savant in, oh, in that what? sense. And, and the, so that maybe helped him, you know, be a genius at chess and maybe be able to manipulate these actors and know exactly what to say to them in order to get those kind of performances or piss them off just enough. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. 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 You mentioned though the the grave seriousness of it too at times, yeah. and I think one of my one of my favorite moments is when Ripper is talking about he's he's already locked himself in the room with uh, with Mandrake, Mandrake. and uh, he's sort of explaining his thing, and you know R- R- Mandrake's asking for the recall code, and and Ripper has this one quote, which of course I I, I think is very serious, and I I think at 
at times I really agree with, which is that war is too important to be left to politicians. Which, I, I, when I think about that line, away from the script, and just as a, as a line that somebody could have said ever, war is too important to be left in the hands of politicians. I think I agree with. Sure. For people who, especially politicians who have never seen war, how can, how can we leave the, the maneuvers, the responsibilities, the, the big ultimate actions of men overseas to people who don't even know what that is? Yeah. So you hear that line and you go, yeah, yeah, that makes, I, that makes sense to me. To be only followed up moments later about, you know, and I want to I get this right. Oh, it's, it's very important to, that you do. To sap and impurify our precious bodily fluids. And that's moments later yeah. in the same little monologue that he gives. Yeah. And it's almost like that that's the, that's the punchline yeah. that starts with a very serious, very serious sentiment. That's what this movie is. Because the, the stuff on the plane reads as drama. Reads yeah, no, as you like, could drop that in any, you could pull those scenes out and drop them into any serious drama yeah. with the same sort of subject matter. And they wouldn't feel out of place. Yeah. Well, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I discovered, I developed this theory, Mandrake, during the physical act of making love. I do not, I do not deny women, Mandrake. My essence. My essence. No, I flubbed that line. <laughs> Fuck it. Oh, no. Mandrake, Mandrake's, is, oh dear. He's just, yeah. he's just so. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. Mm. I found this radio. The, you know, the, the string in my leg is gone, Jack. <laughs> Although it's funny, so we mentioned earlier the bat guano and the stuff at the Coke machine at the end. That's the one bit of comedy I don't like. Oh, when, with the, when the, 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 the machine sprays. Yes, it? yeah, I'm that like, is the only bit that's. It, it's it's the it feels the most out of place in this movie, which is sort of ridiculous anyway. It actually felt the most out of place. Was it the, does the Coke pouring out? Yeah, his, well, that's the thing is George C. Scott's pratfall doesn't feel as out of place as the Coke machine. Exactly. Yes, spraying him in the face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Although the whole but, trying but the to call line. the president is oh, fantastic. Oh, it's so good. And the line, you know... You're going to have to... Answer to the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> That's not even the best stuff in the movie. I mean, I mentioned Peter Sellers giving his three best performances. Okay, so do you want to jump into... Sorry, I don't, I don't want to cut you off, but do you want to talk, like, favorite quote? Is that where you're going or where... Yeah, I get a little bit. Okay, all right, go ahead. Um, the best stuff in the movie are those one-sided conversations. They are so... Good. I mean, there and there is an improvisational sort of feel about them. I mean, Kubrick just he lo- he was in love with Sellers and would just let him get away with anything. Yeah. And these, as so, as we're jumping around the plot a little bit, what's happening is now the the American president he knows what's happening, Mister Mister Merkin. I'm so glad. Mister Merkin Muffley, which let's address this real quick. Oh yeah, please do the the sexual innuendo that is just rampant in this film. Even in the names, I mean, you've got the George C. Scott character, General Turgidson, mm-hmm. speaking of, you know, flaccid members. Yeah. Um, you've got Merkin Muffley. Yep. Merkin being a pubic wig. Yes. Yep. And Muffley, I mean, a, a muff. Muff, yeah. 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 Uh, God, what else have you got? You've got uh, you've got Jack Jack D. Ripper, who, of course, is, is known for Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Known for, for murdering prostitutes back in merry old Victorian England. Yep. Uh, there's another one as well. Oh, uh, Kiss Off. Kiss Off, that's right. Premier Kiss Off. Well, and not even that, but we get the very uh, penetrative opening yes. to this movie of the refueling. Yes. Uh, which I don't know if I, I like more as just a funny visual image or just actually sort of putting out there a, a, like a, just a giant dick measuring contest between the United States and Russia. Well, that's, that's what it is, that you can't have that missile gap. You can't yeah. have that phallic gap. 
So well, and that's what the whole film is. The film is is really just one big long sexual innuendo that is wrapped around this very important, very scary subject. I yeah. mean, I think it is the most frightening satire that's ever been made. But on that's that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is just these guys are just obsessed with sex. These guys are supposed to be they're asleep at the switch because they're all just obsessed with sex. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's the great scene. Right in the early in the war room sequences, where his secretary calls up Turgidson, and you know he's <laughs> that great line about no, it's not just physical. I deeply respect you as a human being. <laughs> now, 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 go to sleep. I'll be there in a couple hours. Make sure you say your prayers. Yeah, I, I just I love that. And anyway, the whole and the idea too that if they're gonna these these deep mind shafts that they yes. can they can use to repopulate and of course of course ten, the women ten females to yes, every male yes and they'll the, have to be they'll have to be picked on their sexual attractability because you know we're gonna have to be having sex a lot yeah to to, to reprocreate this country that was the first I saw this film at that kind of age that age where I'm going through puberty and you know. Becoming a man. When was the first time you saw this? I must have been like 13 when I saw this film. I I definitely didn't see it until I was probably 20. Okay, so the sexual references were just everywhere to me. I was like, what is happening in this? I thought I was sitting down to watch a real political satire. What the hell is happening? What is wrong with these people? Other than, uh, apart from the obvious, but no, just I I love how blatant, like the unapologetic. Is the word that I would use the, no. the sexual rampancy yeah. running through this film, well, and, and the, the way that it ends in a, in a climax of sorts. Yes, all the explosions. Yeah, well, oh, of course. And with with Kong riding the bomb down, the, the oh bomb yeah, between the his legs. Yeah, 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 the ultimate climax. Yes, and it's funny where where it kind of it perks up when you're not expecting it when uh, Kong is going through the uh, survival kit. Oh yeah, and we end with like we get there's the con pro- prophylactics. Paranylon stockings, and it's like whoa. And of course, it, it leads to the, it leads to the you know guy could have a great weekend in Vegas with this. But it starts off with you know it's like you know you get the rations, the gun, the rubles, the gold. Yeah, everything makes the, sense. The, the Bible in Russian, or yeah. Whatever. And then it just there's this switch. It's a prophylactics, and you're like, wait, what? Yeah. And it's just man, it, you're right. The way in which we you go from the serious and the direct to the just nonsensical. It's one of the greatest high wire high wire balancing acts that's ever been done on film. Yeah. As far as trying to skirt that line between, we are talking about the most deadly serious topic or at least one of the most deadly serious topics at the time. I guess it's still, I mean, we still have have nuclear warheads and things like that. So it still is pretty serious. Yeah. But to be able to straddle that line of, we're going to go as ridiculous as we can with this thing, but we're also going to try and scare the shit out of you as well. Well, it's funny. I just, in in terms of, of satire, have you seen sorry to bother you? No. Okay. Watch it. Yeah. I watched it a couple of days ago, and um, it's satire in a different way, and it's not about there's no president, it, but it, it's very much a movie of now. It's it's again it's 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 pushing satire like as far as it can, and it yeah. works. Like, and I think I think with satire you have to do that. Like, if yeah. you're gonna make a point about making something funny that should be deadly serious, then you got to do it this way. You've got to you've got to push it. Anyway, I was uh, the greatest scenes in the film. Sorry, I was oh sure, yes, yes, yes. Dialogue there before we got really sidetracked. Those one-sided conversations where, of course, now President Muffley has to get a hold of the Russian premier. I'm so glad. This is my favorite part. It's so good. Well, it happens twice. We we get it not once but twice. Yes, which is just a, it's a little gift. 
I feel like we did it so well once. Here you go. Here it is again. We know how much we know how good it is. The first one is my favorite. Yes, it is. And where he's trying to calm the premiere down. And of course he can't. He's trying to. I I love kind of visualizing what the other side of that conversation. I don't want to see it. Yeah. Because I enjoy visualizing it so much. This this drunk premiere is the middle of the night over there. Yeah. And he's trying to, to get him to, like, come. You know, now, Dimitri, we've always talked about, about something going wrong with the bomb. Yes. And even before the, the bomb, you, Dimitri. You're, you're fine? Well, well I, I'm fine. So, so we're both fine. And, uh, oh, God, I wrote, I wrote a couple of them down. Yeah, something, yeah. Um, well, he went a little funny in the head. That's another one I wrote down. You know, oh, just uh, a little funny. And then it's like, well, of course I'd like to speak to you. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm sorry. You, you're sorry. Well, we can. Well, I'm. Don't you can't be you. more sorry. Yeah. I, well, 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 so we're both sorry. That. Uh, it's so good. You know, before, I think initially, the, so the, the last time I watched this, I must have been maybe four or five years ago when I was in grad school, and I would have told you then that I think I thought that the funniest part of the movie was uh, Strange Love and the ultimate Mind Fear I Can Walk. Like yeah. when I watched it at that time, that really stood out as just ludicrous. But watching it this time for the podcast and trying to, you know, watch, because I, I, I watch, I generally watch movies now with the subtitles on, so I can make sure that I'm, oh. I'm getting all the text yeah. and, yeah. and everything. That conversation this last time had me in stitches. It, it, it just, I mean, and, and I'm laughing through the movie anyway, but yeah. I had to stop after that that scene because it is so damn funny. Yeah. Sellers is phenomenal in this movie. It can't, and we've already said it, but it can't be understated how great he is in this I movie. Mean, how much better could Rex Harrison have been in My Fair Lady? Come on. I don't I, I don't know. How good can that performance be? And you know, like, when you, you see some movies later on, they're already kind of tainted because it's like, like, this is the movie that beat yeah. Strange Love for well, Best Picture. That's the reason I've never watched Ordinary People. So, seriously? Oh, because it beat Raging Bull? Something beat Raging Bull? Nothing yeah. beats Raging Bull. Yeah. <laughs> The only thing that beats Raging Bull is more Raging Bull. Um, you, you don't beat Raging Bull. Raging Bull beats you. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's entertainment. Hey. Um, so this, I think this could be a fun one. Unsung Heroes. Who is the unsung hero of this movie? For you. It's probably Colonel Bat Guano. Okay. You went, re- you went really low. Yeah. Or like like, really, like a, just a really small character. Yeah. Okay. Because, I mean, the, everybody is so good in this. They are. But when I... So, I, I actually... It's so funny. I gave this a lot of thought. Yeah. This unsung hero. Because, it, obviously, it can't be Sellers and it can't be Kubrick. And it can't be Sterling Hayden, either. See, I think it is Sterling Hayden. Because when I think of this movie... I th- Peter Sellers and Stanley Kubrick, they shoot right up there. And I think George C. Scott isn't in it enough. And I know Sterling Hayden isn't in it a lot, too. But he's like the one guy who plays the whole thing straight. Yeah. And in that is just hysterical. It's just so good in the movie. See, and I was I'm thinking more bit parts. Sure. But that, I do agree with you. I think it is and I, that's I, I know I, I could have gone smaller, but I, I, I didn't think, think of it like I just that. think he's overshadowed. Yeah. I think, you know, you've got Sellers, of course, and then Kubrick putting the movie out there. And I think George C. Scott, because of of uh, the scenes that he's in and and the ridiculousness, I think you re- we remember these, and I think even oh, the, and the production design, yes, again overshadows everything. It's but just I think so even I think even at. Slim Pickens overshadows Sterling Hayden, if for no other reason than he's got the very iconic riding the bomb down scene. Yeah. Sterling Hayden doesn't get any of the iconic scenes. 
other than the well they're all in his dialogue he doesn't get to do anything physically yes, yes. but like you know, you know if you see the flashes of strange love in your mind you see you can see dr strange love you see the bomb you see the war room yep. right you don't really i you know i for me i don't really sit back and think of seeing sterling hayden yep. but now it's like but now you see him chomping on that cigar and just like and i and i mean smoking a whole cigar in one sitting is like that's nuts to me like i get kind of sick if i if i if i do more than more than half in like a half hour sitting. I'm like, I'm feeling that. Yeah. And the guy, he is chomping on this thing. I'm like, dude, this guy, he's hardcore. He's man. no joke. Yeah, yeah. Jack Ripper to the max. I also <laughs> like at the uh, the facility, the war or pieces our business. Oh, that's brilliant. Which of course, or not of course, you might not know this, but that was not production design. That base literally had that sign there. That's brilliant. And Kubrick was like, well, this is gonna fit in nicely. Yeah. So let's let's keep it. Well, yeah, because the only time you see it is while you know bullets are flying everywhere. Oh, can we talk about the name of the base, Burpleson? I don't know that it's a sexual innuendo, but just the names in this movie in general are ridiculous. Yeah, oh yeah, Burpleson Air Force Base. Well, and the the other thing about this movie is in its in its satire, in its comedy, and even in its seriousness, it's the details, it's the things that they got right and guessed right too. Yeah. That it's. You know, the fact that I think this movie actually changed, it got Congress to go back, okay, well, well we got to make sure that the idea of this doomsday thing, that can never happen. Like, like we could never actually create something. Well, there's the little, co- there's the thing at the beginning, right? The, the sort of covering their ass yes. of like, this yes. can't happen. Yeah. I mean, it, it might, but it, this can't happen. Yeah. <laughs> and just how far, you know, that Kubrick talked to thermonuclear physicists and, and really went deep into... Well, that's one of my favorite little details. Yeah. Some of the some of the information that he was getting from him and the way that the guy talked in such sort of cold and callous terms about what it means to lose 10 million people and have that be a victory. All the research he did, and when I was doing notes, and the whole idea of the, um, you mentioned it earlier, the, the mutual assured destruction. Right. And this idea of kind of playing the odds and probability, and uh, it made me think more about game theory. Do you know game theory? Yeah. Yeah, and... and uh, it made me think of the, because I did a show a couple years ago where that's part of the subject matter is, is game theory and, and mathematics and everything and, and the prisoner's dilemma. Do you know the prisoner's dilemma? Do you know this? No, I haven't heard of that. So the prisoner's dilemma, it's one of the like old, like original game theory, uh, what would you call it? The game theory uh, problem that, that you would bring up and that's sort of where the whole game theory goes is two guys are arrested. Let's say they're arrested for robbing a bank and... You have a lot of evidence, but not enough to convict them. But let's say you found them both with guns. You've got them for a lesser charge, but you want to get them for the big crime. Yeah. And you hold them separately so they have no contact with each other. And you basically go to them with the same proposal. If you rat out your friend, you can basically leave as long as they admit to it. You rat them out, and they admit to it, and you can go. So you have two choices. You can either rat out your friend... Or stay silent. And then there's there's basically four four scenarios. They can both stay silent, and they each do a year for the lesser charge. They can both rat each other out, and then they get two years because they were both kind you know they were both kind of lying. Yeah. Well, and then there's the one where one stays silent and one rats the other one out. And in, in either of those cases, so there's there's two different scenarios because there's person A and person B. But the person who stays silent gets three years, and the other person gets to walk out. And the whole idea is it's playing the odds. You know, it's do you do you ad- admit that you did something 
to let somebody else go or do you stay silent? Staying silent is going to guarantee you time anyway, but saying that you writing the other person out doesn't guarantee you, you know, it doesn't yeah. guarantee that you can leave. And that has something to do with the movie, that that particular scenario, but it just it goes back to that idea of you know, what's the other one doing? Like how do we maneuver what we want to do when we don't know what the other person is doing? And it's the whole idea of the doomsday machine that will just trigger itself and you it, it's been programmed to where it can't it can't turn it off. It can't turn it off. It's ridiculous, but yet the way they describe everything, it's like it's serious enough that you go, oh, Jesus, this this could be a real thing. And well, and it leads into more amazing dialogue too. Oh yeah. Know, why why didn't you tell the world? Because the, the premiere loves surprises. <laughs> hey, we've we've talked about some of our favorite dialogue, but is there a better line in film comedy history than? Gentlemen, you can't find in here. This is the war room. Is there a better line than that? Because I I can't think of one. I, it's tough because you know what are you what are you going for? I think if you're going for iconic lines like lines that have stood the test of time, the only other one that jumps out at me that quickly would be "I'll have what she's having." Yeah, which is both you know both of those lines are in response to something physical that's just happened, right? So yeah. it's really it's it's not even that it's the joke; it's the punchline. The thing is, they both work. They both have two two different things that they're 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 talking about at the same time. Because gentlemen, you can't fight in here in the war. This is the war room. It's just a funny line, and then it's also funny because it's the war room. You would expect someone to fight in there. And then yeah. with "I'll have what she's having," it's funny because you have the orgasm, but you're also at a restaurant where that line would be, "Oh, I'll have." I'll have what she's having, yeah. which is just great. Anyways, that was a tangent. No, well, it was it was a it was a fine tangent. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. But I never thought we'd be talking about when Harry met Sally, as we were talking about Doctor Strange. Love Doctor Strange. I I think Kubrick could be rolling in his grave. Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe maybe he liked when Harry met Sally. He had some strange taste, apparently. Yeah, that's that's fair. So when you're when you're talking about the the game theory, and we're talking about the the sterility in which. Kubrick shot this, the lack of emotion, the way that he was talking to the thermonuclear physicists and getting his information there and how cold and kind of calculating they were in the way that they would approach, um, you know, what, what does it look like to have 10 million people die and is that a success versus the alternative? There's a great little throwaway thing that I love. There's a shot in front of Turgidson where it's a shot from very low down so you can see the, the book that he's holding is uh, World Targets in Megadeths. Which I just, that was apparently something that Kubrick really did research on. And that's the, the way that these people have to think. You know, yeah. it, as you were talking about in the game theory, you have to, you know, call those odds, essentially. Yeah. That's just one of my favorite shots while I'm thinking about stuff that stands or stood out to me, rather, on this viewing. Doesn't and while we're talking about that, do you have a favorite shot? Oh, man. It's so funny because I think this movie is ruled by the dialogue. Yeah. And the, well, yeah, which leads into the performances. But in terms of a favorite shot, do you? Do you have anything that comes yeah, right? Yeah, no, I, I love the way the the shots are framed in the war room. Not just that one from low down with the, so you, you make sure you can see the title of the book, but yeah. also the way that Merkin Muffley is framed. I just love saying that name. <laughs> uh, the way that he is framed between the shoulders of the two men on the opposite side of the table while he's sparring back and forth with Turgidson. And just the way the smoke is kind of coming from nowhere for no reason. Yeah. It's, it's a very hazy kind of room. Just, again, to have that kind of poker room feeling. Yeah. I mean, I can't recall anybody smoking in the scene. There, there may be. But... Yeah, well, yeah. Nothing that, that I can remember. Yeah. 
It's just it's hazy because it can be. Yeah, which which I love. But yeah, I just I love the I love that. There's something about that shot. I don't know, and he's he's such a you really feel his power as president. Like he's not going to take shit from his generals. Yeah. He's not going to allow them to dictate the way this situation goes even though little no little does he know that this is totally out of his control and that one of his generals has screwed him and the population of the world so royally. Yeah. I, I love there's the, there's an almost a, an innocence to that, just, just feeling like I am the most powerful man in the world and I can solve this. Well, yeah, no, you can't. I don't know that I have a shot that just sticks out to me. No. And I don't want to go cliche, but I really actually do love the shot of him writing the bomb down. Yeah. I think that's that's really well done, not just for the time, but even now I think it, it looks pretty cool. And I, I almost appreciate that as he's writing the bomb down, it almost looks like what the map looks like when you're doing like a montage in a movie where yeah. it's just like the outline of a country and it says the country's on it. Like yeah. it, it looks more like a paper map. Oh, which yeah, I love that detail. But it but it almost adds to the to the satire of it. Yeah, that it, we're not you're not landing on a real place, you know, real earth and real people. But it is more it's a target on a map. Yeah, no, that's that's a great insight there. The way that there's a sort of a removal from that. Yeah, and especially that's even more prevalent now, where you have say the drone pilots. Yeah, where it is. I mean, that's you, not a that's not a human being. That's you just, just remove, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You remove all yeah all feeling from it. Oh, there is another there is another shot. That I absolutely love, and it is—it's the end. It's not a shot so much as it's a cut. And the, the the note that I took while I was writing this down was like, the the greatest cut of all time. I don't think uh, there, you'd you'd find it hard to dispute this. I think the greatest cut of all time is Lawrence of Arabia, blowing oh, the out match. the match. Yes, right. But this this is pretty close. I love the cut of Mein Führer. I can walk, cutting to. A bomb going off. Yeah. And then you kick in with the virulin. Yes. We'll meet again. Yeah. Don't know where. Don't know when. Yeah. You can have that. That's my gift to you. Oh, thank you. Well, it'll be the gift to everybody who listens, really. Oh, great. Um, yeah, that's... That's why I shouldn't do these things hungover. Yeah, well. So, I, I think it's ridiculous question time. But, Ian... Do I even have to dignify this with an answer? Do you think this movie should be in the book? It is it is Kubrick's first masterpiece. Yeah. So it absolutely does deserve to be in there. In fact, for the longest time it was my favorite Kubrick. I don't think it's I don't think it's Kubrick's best. Sure. By any stretch of the imagination. I mean it's two thousand one probably is the greatest thing he ever made. But as far as personal favorites go, yeah. For the longest time it was Strange Love and now it's now it's Barry Lyndon. Yeah. Oh it's tough, man. It yeah. And that's the sign of a, of a good director is is going back and forth between what I think his best movie is. Yeah, you know I think my well his, his and his best versus your personal favorite as well. Well, sure, yeah. Be- best and personal favorite that you know how do I know what his best movie is versus what just my favorite movie? Well, is? Well, quality quality versus your own personal feelings about it. Like I'm going to come out and say that I think one of the greatest technical achievements of all time is Ben Hur. That doesn't mean it's a personal favorite film of mine. I just believe that that is genuinely one of the ten greatest films that that has ever been made. <sighs> yeah. Well, you, I mentioned, you mentioned a movie I'm not particularly fond of. So. Well, yeah, I know, but but I can I, I can that chariot race. Look at that chariot race, man. They no, did that. I they did for real. I I I understand. It, that. it is the greatest technical achievement that has ever been committed to film. Sure. And some could say that Avatar 
is one of the greatest cinematic technical achievements oh, to ever be Jesus done. And that movie Christ. is garbage. It is garbage. Okay, ben but... Hur, Ben-Hur is not garbage. It's not garbage. We are on such a tangent. Yeah, we are. We're, we're talking about whether Dr. Strangelove deserves to be in the book. And yes, it yes, absolutely it does. does, yes. And I've mentioned this kind of a lot when, when, we, when we kind of say, yeah, this should be in the book. And this is another case where this movie is 95 minutes. It's not a long movie, and you don't it's have great. any excuses. Yeah, you need to go see this movie. Yeah. Just go see it. It's fantastic. Just and treat yourself. It get works. Get the twenty-five bucks. It by works. The criterion. Yeah, exactly. It works under any administration. It doesn't. I don't. That's the thing. Is it's it's political, but without really it seems to without taking sides. It's yeah. just making fun of the the idea of it, which I think is it's great. It's. I feel like this movie doesn't have an agenda as other to say. This is serious, but sometimes we were so serious that we that it makes it ridiculous. Well, you can say, I mean, the, the one of the comparisons I drew because Strange Love is timeless, and you think, well, what other political films out there are timeless? Well, it depends on the political sort of environment that you're in at the time. Say, like all the, all the, all the all president's, president's men. men. That that probably wasn't. It didn't feel timeless probably ten or fifteen years ago, but it certainly does now yeah, because of the, the times that we are living in. Yeah. Strangelove, I feel like, and you've mentioned it, Strangelove, it works in yeah. any in any situation. I yeah. mean, as long as we have these sorts of, of weapons at our disposal, as long as we have a sort of mutual assured destruction, then, yeah, this film is always going to be timeless. Yeah. I, and I don't see that going away anytime soon. Either. And yeah. so, therefore, hopefully Dr. Strangelove never goes away. Yeah. And if I may be so bold... I would like to finish because I think we're we're pretty much at the end here. I would like to finish with a quote from Kubrick himself. If that's ah, okay. yes. Uh, so this is from that that book that I mentioned at the beginning, the Stanley Kubrick Archives. Which, if you're a fan of Kubrick, this needs to be on your shelf. I mean, I think we, I, Liz picked it up on Amazon for probably fifteen, maybe eighteen bucks. This beautiful, the the color photos in it are just the way they've reproduced documents, like handwritten documents. Uh, and so, which is where this quote is from. I mean, they found it amongst... They, they gave unprecedented access to his archives, and it really shows. I mean, it's a fabulous book, yeah. which is absolutely worth every penny you'll spend on it. Anyway, so this handwritten note was found when they were researching this book. It was written by Kubrick in 1962 as he was prepping uh, Dr. Strangelove. He says, Just as man once viewed the Earth as the true center of the universe, he now views his nation as the moral center of the universe. And who will be our Galileo? He was a smart man. Yeah, it feels slightly pretentious, but I'm going with it anyway. No, it sounds great. Um, so that was Kubrick's feeling. You've heard ours. We want to hear yours. Uh, so please find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Leave some comments. Let us know what you think. Uh, if you had seen it, let us know why you like it. And if you haven't, please watch it and let us know what you thought about it. Um, if you're listening, you're probably listening on iTunes and Google Play and on Spotify. Please you know, rate us, review us, leave comments, all that stuff. We're going to be looking to expand where you can find us. So uh, if you have a suggestion on what your preferred platform is that you listen to, let us know and we'll, we'll look into that. Got a couple of good episodes coming up too. So, you know, stay tuned. Stick around. The next one's in. going to be real controversial. Well, there you go. Until then, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week. Mr. President, we must not allow a mine shaft gap. Sir. I have a plan. Monsieur! Has it worked?